Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Therapeutics Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Lizeth Garcia Jennings, and I will be your host for today's episode. So with me today is Jason Bergsbacken, and Jason works at UW Health as the Regional Oncology Coordinator, and Jason's practice interests include oncology, leadership, and residency training. And today we're going to be talking about PARP inhibitors. So thanks for joining us, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So let's start with the basics. Can you talk through what are PARP inhibitors, how do they work, and what patients would benefit from these therapies? Yeah, absolutely. So PARP stands for poly-ADP ribose polymerase. Um, so that is just a, a normally occurring enzyme that patients and people have. We know that that enzyme is involved in a number of normal um, DNA processes, uh, mainly DNA repair. So when cells um, undergo just spontaneous single-strand uh, DNA breaks, PARP is recruited to help form that DNA repair complex and ultimately lead to DNA repair. Now, in the case of targeting cancer cells, um, this mechanism obviously is not that attractive. So we can use PARP inhibitors uh, to inhibit PARP uh, and let those single-strand DNA breaks um, progress to double-stranded breaks. Now, once these double-stranded breaks occur, we know that cells have another process called homologous recombination, uh, where those cells um, are ultimately repaired as well. So where these, these inhibitors have had kind of particular interest and use is in patients that have genetic mutations that do not allow that homologous repair process, where thereby these uh, drugs would lead to cell death. So uh, in terms of, you know, what patients may benefit from these therapies. I think that's one of the most interesting questions as we continue to learn um, where we may benefit most um, from these therapies. You know, based on the mechanism that we talked about, I think it was, you know, certainly um, makes sense that patients that have those homologous repair deficiencies, um, including BRCA mutations, um, would be the most likely to, to benefit. However, um, we have seen, um, particularly in the ovarian cancer trials, that there are patients that have benefited from these therapies that don't possess those deficiencies. So something we're, we're learning and I think we'll continue to learn. Excellent. Thanks for walking us through that. So what PARP inhibitors are currently FDA approved and where are they usually indicated? I know you've mentioned a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, there are four FDA approved PARP inhibitors on the market. So we have uh, Alaparib, Rucaparib, Niraparib, and Talizaparib. Uh, Alaparib is, is notable given it was the first um, FDA-approved PARP inhibitor in December of 2014. I would say, you know, ovarian cancer was certainly an, an early area of interest, knowing uh, the frequency of the aforementioned BRCA mutations as well as um, homologous repair deficiencies. Uh, so we do see three of those, uh, Alaparib, Rucaparib, and uh, Niraparib uh, having current approvals in ovarian cancer. Apart from ovarian cancer, we also have approvals uh, in breast cancer, prostate cancer, and pancreatic cancer. And again, all of those are cancer that we know are linked to BRCA mutations, uh, as well as homologous repair deficiencies. So, you know, I think as we talk through maybe kind of the selection of the PARP inhibitors themselves, that's where it kind of can get a little bit more nuanced in, in terms of the specific indications that, that the therapies possess. And then as we talked about, there are again, differences based on what we might expect in terms of patient response based on their 
possession or, or lack of, of those genetic mutations. All right. What are some potential adverse effects of the PARP inhibitors and how do you manage these? Yeah. So, you know, really important topic. Uh, and I think, you know, for us as pharmacists, something we certainly help help our patients with. So there are um, a number of what we would consider class um, adverse effects of PARP inhibitors. So really, uh, regardless um, of the inhibitor, things to think about. So first off, we have cytopenias and, and more specifically um, anemias that, that are seen. What's kind of interesting is that when we talk about the mechanism and how these therapies, you know, target PARP, um, there is differences in terms of um, the trapping potency um, for the PARP inhibitor itself um, on, on PARP. So a drug like niraparib um, and talzoparib, we know have relatively stronger um, trapping potencies, which then um, lead to greater uh, risk for those cytopenias. So something to keep in mind. Other kind of class effects include fatigue. So is something that you know, we generally hope can be not seen or, or mild. However, we do see some moderate to severe cases where, which may impact, you know, dose um, intensity. So uh, certainly counsel our patients on kind of, you know, the um, lifestyle modifications they can do to help support this, but sometimes we may have to adjust patient's dose. And then finally, um, nausea is, is also common as well. I would say in practice, we generally will just send patients home with an as-needed um, anti-emetic therapy. However, we may have to schedule that therapy in some patients depending on their level of nausea. Um, what's also interesting from the adverse effect perspective is just is specific adverse effects that we may see um, from each of the therapies themselves. So we talked about the cytopenias and then particularly, you know, more of the thrombocytopenia as well as neutropenia that we see in the case of niraparib and talazoparib, given that increased um, trapping potency. Niraparib does have um, more intensive recommendations as it terms uh, for monitoring those cytopenias. So um, there, it is recommended uh, that patients have weekly um, CBC monitoring for the first month of therapy. And that is the most kind of intensive recommendation um, on label across the class. One strategy with niraparib that has been seen some benefit in terms of managing those cytopenias is actually to start at a lower dose. So rather than the 300 milligrams once a day initial um, dose, patients would be start, say, at 200 milligrams daily, um, particularly in the cases if they have a lower body weight at baseline or lower baseline platelet count. Uh, and that's helped um, kind of manage those cytopenias. In terms of other things to look for, so niraparib is unique in that it has um, some cardiovascular potentials for toxicity. So there is some additional recommendations related to heart rate as well as blood pressure monitoring uh, in, the, in the first initial months of therapy. And that can be problematic, close to a grade or sorry, 10% in grade three um, issues that have been seen. So certainly it's not trivial. Um, so it's something to keep in mind in patients, particularly with cardiac histories. Mercaparib um, does have um, some transient um, elevations uh, in liver enzymes that have been seen. Um, there's no additional monitoring there. However, um, something to keep in mind. Um, Elaparib uh, is notable for the low risk for pneumonitis. So just something that we educate our patients on, certainly if they have, you know, shortness of breath or something that would be, that would flag. So again, I think kind of to summarize there, you know, we have kind of our class effects, but then we have our specific adverse effects um, per agent that may drive our treatment selection. Thank you. Yeah, those are all things that as pharmacists, it's huge for us to be able to help with those and jump right in. All right. So you mentioned a little bit about this, but what criteria impacts your PARP inhibitor selection for patients? And how can the pharmacist be involved in this selection process? 
Yeah. Um, great, great question to think about here. I, I think, you know, as we talked about with kind of the labeled indications, first off, again, there are some nuances as it relates to the indications across the tumor types and the possession of the um, certain, um, you know, genomic statuses. So, um, for example, in the ovarian space, a laparib with with their trials, so solo one and solo two, respectively, which were in the maintenance setting, uh, in the first line and recurrence setting, they really specify those trials to include patients that had uh, BRCA mutant patients. So um, again, it does make sense, given what we talked about from a mechanism of action perspective, that those patients would benefit more. Um, however, you look at um, niraparib, for example, with their maintenance trials, they actually used um, all comers in terms of their population. So those included patients that had BRCA mutations, but also um, non-BRCA um, uh, HRD type mutations, as well as um, no signs at all. So because of that, Neraparib, for example, does have a broader label uh, in terms of the patients that may be uh, may benefit, you know, in, in either the first line or the recurrent maintenance setting. So I think really, again, in terms of selection, where that I think begs the question for us is, you know, in the, say those non-BRCA mutant patients, um, which of them, you know, are candidates for maintenance therapy uh, in ovarian cancer and, and who might benefit the most. I think often that comes down to individual patient discussions and kind of risk benefit in terms of, you know, what they might expect to see for benefit, but um, also weighing that toxicity that we, we discussed. So that's just an example of, again, some of the nuances, I think, of the labeled indications that, that we need to keep in mind. Um, certainly with selection, we think about toxicity. So we just talked about that kind of at length. And I think where we have, you know, comparable indications, you know, there may be characteristics of a patient that based on the toxicity prior, uh, profile of the individual agent, we, we might want to shy away from. So, and I think finally, you know, it is kind of on the, the financial access side. So, you know, as we know, that that's a um, challenge with, with oral oncolytic therapies, um, particularly with, you know, some of our populations, including our, you know, Medicare populations. So each of the, the agents does have, you know, support programs and those types of things. Um, there may be some nuances in terms of, you know, differences uh, in those programs where, again, it might lead us to one therapy um, over the other. Excellent. Yeah, you're right. Definitely taking that financial landscape into consideration is always so important too for these patients. All right. So what are some potential future applications of PARP inhibitors? Yeah, so, um, you know, definitely um, an exciting space kind of, a, of where these continue to be studied and, and we continue to see, you know, the, the utilization um, evolve. So I think first off um, would be, you know, these agents are certainly being studied, you know, earlier in therapy. So I kind of touched on some of the ovarian data in the maintenance setting and the initial in approval in, in the recurrent setting. With a laparib, particularly, so laparib is unique in that it does have indications across all four of the tumor types we've discussed today. A laparib does have an NCCN recommendation now uh, in the adjuvant um, breast cancer space, uh, as well as um, approval in, in prostate and um, pancreatic as well. So that's just an example, I think, of, you know, with, with the adjuvant setting in particularly, I think we might see that these continue to be, you know, studied up front to see by kind of slotting them earlier in the overall treatment paradigm, how they might be more effective. Um, the other areas is combination therapies. So, you know, these are being studied in term with androgen impacting therapies in prostate cancer with checkpoint inhibitor therapies, um, with chemotherapy as well. So, those studies will continue to kind of evolve. And then um, finally, there's um, kind of an interesting study, uh, the DUAT trial, which is looking at actual PARP inhibitor use after progression on a prior PARP. So 
in the maintenance setting. So we would, um, in this study, they're actually looking at a, an ATR inhibitor, which we know is a um, common mechanism of, of PARP inhibitor resistance. If we can add that um, to, PARP, to a PARP inhibitor in the maintenance setting in ovarian cancer, uh, again, in a population that's already had um, prior PARP inhibitor therapy to see if we can kind of resensitize them for benefit. So I think really all of those areas, you know, are interesting. And, um, you know, again, Olaparib was just approved about now about seven years ago. And, and just seeing the evolution in that short amount of time, I think this will continue to evolve. Excellent. Yeah. Always new and exciting things coming up. All right. So what are some of the key takeaways our listeners can take away regarding the PARP inhibitor therapies? Yeah. So I think, again, starting with the mechanism, again, the, based on... Um, the way these work, it certainly uh, would seem that these should work better in patients that have that homologous repair deficiency uh, types of mutations, including BRCA mutations. Um, however, we have seen in, in patients that do not possess those deficiencies, as we currently see them, um, there's, there may be some benefit as well. So something we continue to learn um, more about. Um, I think on the selection side, um, again, I think keeping uh, in uh, account the nuances and the current approvals. Um, as well as the toxicity profiles. So we had nausea, fatigue, cytopenias as things that we can kind of see across the class, but um, there are those, those nuances um, type toxicities as well as nuanced management strategies per agent. Um, so certainly as a pharmacist, um, something we can weigh in on as, as treatments are selected. And I think finally, again, just how, how we can help patients access these therapies, uh, given we know that's a barrier, given, given their high cost. So um, we certainly have a role to play in terms of um, helping patients with those access programs uh, and helping them mitigate potential, you know, higher out-of-pocket costs. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, I think as this field or as this class, you know, continues to evolve, I'm sure we'll be talking about more and more uh, indications in the years to come. And this will be a much, much longer podcast. <laughs> Yeah, well, definitely. Thank you for walking us through that great summary. So thank you, Jason, for joining us for today's episode of Therapeutics Thursdays. So if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resource centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists Connect community, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. So thanks again for tuning in for this session of Therapeutics Thursdays and join us here every Thursday. We'll be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.